first nine plagues. That's the title of our message. I've subtitled it, The Deliverance Begins. Would you open up to chapter 7 of the book of Exodus? After witnessing the incredible miracle of Aaron's rod serpent, swallowing up all the rod serpents of his wise men and his magicians and his sorcerers, even after that great miracle, Pharaoh did not change his mind about God or about God's command to let the Hebrews leave Egypt. He remained stubbornly resolute in his decision not to submit, because to his mindset, submission meant surrender, and surrender meant weakness. And he didn't he was the king. He was probably the most powerful man on the planet at that time in history. And tragically, his sinful pride, because that's exactly what it was, his pride not only brought great sorrow to himself, but to his people. Isn't it a shame what a leader of a country can do? So he brought, and to his whole land. That's what pride can do. Look what the pride of Lucifer did. So Egypt, and this is a shame because Egypt back then was one of the most developed and prosperous of all ancient lands. It probably was the most prosperous. Moses was very privileged to get an Egyptian education because they were very, very, very advanced for their day. So there's no telling really what kind of heights of magnificence she could have reached. And she did reach heights, but she could have reached oh so much more so if her pharaohs had continued to bless Jacob's descendants the way that Joseph's pharaoh had. Remember how he so graciously in hospitality opened up the best land of Egypt for Jacob's descendants to dwell in, the land of Goshen? I mean, and you know God keeps his promise. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless Abraham and his descendants, curse those that don't. So Egypt under Joseph's Pharaoh was blessed. And it could have continued that way, and Egypt could be one of the most blessed countries on the earth. Instead, it isn't. They still do not know the Lord, as Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? You know, I don't know him. I have been to Egypt, and it is, I couldn't wait to leave, to be honest with you. It was the most oppressive place. I've, I've been to a lot of oppressive places, but I just felt the oppression there. I thought, you know, if every, I can't remember how many million people live there. Many, many million people live there. I thought if everybody would bend over and pick up one piece of trash, they could clean the city in one day, but just trash everywhere. And the Nile was filth, it was just nasty. They could have been blessed by God, but her pharaohs after Joseph's pharaoh did not, of course, bless her. Instead, they brought God's curse upon the land and the people by, first of all, killing off, or tried to kill off, the Jews by killing the baby males that were born at the time of Moses, and then enslaving and afflicting the Hebrew people and refusing, as this Pharaoh did, refusing to grant them their freedom. So with this lesson, as I said, we come to the first nine of God's plague judgments on Egypt in preparation for the great exodus. The deliverance is beginning. We're going to save the 10th plague for next time. So as the Lord himself stated in chapter 9, 14, he said that it was time for him to demonstrate to Egypt and to Israel 
and really to the entire world who would hear about what he did in the Exodus, that there is none like me in all the earth. That's a true statement. Are there, is there anyone like God Almighty? No. He was going to show forth his absolute power over all realms of life, which is exactly what the creator, the one who sent these judgments on Egypt, did when he came in flesh. He demonstrated his power over every realm of life and death. Did not Jesus do that in his earthly ministry? He did. So he's going to show forth his power, and he's going to do it by smiting Egypt with plagues, ten successive plagues, one after the other after the other. They don't know how long it took for the ten plagues to happen because we don't know how much space is between them. But some guesstimate, (laughs) maybe six months, maybe a year, I don't know. But one after another came. The word plague actually appears in the account three times. You'd think it'd be more than that, but only three times. It is a Hebrew word that means to strike or to blow, to give a blow. The ten, and that's very appropriate because that's what God did. Ten blows he struck on Egypt. And they were water to blood, a massive frog (laughs) invasion, And then the third one is God turned dust to lice and swarms. We're going to talk about swarms. It says of flies, but not necessarily because of flies is in italics. That's not in the original. So we'll see what those swarms might have been. We know it was flying insects, and that's enough. And then a grievous disease that was on Egypt's livestock only, not the Israel's, Israelites. Then boils all over the bodies of men and beasts. Seventh, a very extremely damaging hail. The eighth plague was locusts. Ninth plague, of course, was a three-day darkness that was so thick. Can you imagine this? So thick, you could feel it. Very significant spiritually there. And then, of course, the tenth plague was the death of all the firstborns of both men and beasts. Unless... Their doorposts were covered by the blood of the lamb. All right, now the plagues can be divided into three groups of three with the tenth one standing all by itself. The first three plagues, water to blood, frogs, and lice, caused great inconvenience on the people and annoying discomfort. You know, no permanent damage, but just very annoying. The second set of three plagues, swarms, livestock disease that caused death and boils caused great annoyance, definitely, death of personal property, all their cattle died, the Egyptians, and personal pain, boils, you know, like Job. Anybody here want to volunteer to be covered from head to foot with boils? I am sure it's painful. And then the third set of three plagues, Hail, locusts, and the thick three-day darkness caused the greatest destruction and dread. I mean, that darkness was scary, frightening, dreadful. The final judgment, of course, of course, death to all firstborns, human and beast, was the most dreadful of all the plagues because it brought death and heavy grieving, wailing throughout all of Egypt. The first three were performed, of course, they were all performed by the Lord God Almighty. 
but he used in the first three Aaron's rod. In the second three, the the, uh, miracle plagues were performed by the Lord without the mention of Aaron or Moses' rod. Just no mention of either one. The third set of plagues was performed by Moses. Of course, the Lord through Moses. The first two, hail and locusts, were by way of his rod. The last one in that group was the darkness, and that was brought on by just his uplifted hands. It doesn't say anything about his rod. The final judgment, the death of the firstborns, was accomplished by God himself. He did not directly involve Moses or Aaron in that last plague. There is no mention of whether the Israelites were protected from the first three plagues. Do you know that? We always think they were protected from all ten, but the scripture does not specifically say that the Israelites were protected from those first three, the water to blood, the frogs, and the uh, lice. However, there are hints that they were not, that it was just for the Egyptians. And we'll talk about those as we go through. We do know that the Israelites were protected from misery and from damage of the second three plagues as well as the last three plagues and, of course, the the tenth plague. So we do know they were protected from the last seven plagues. Of course, the tenth plague, they were only protected if they obeyed God and applied the, the blood And even any Egyptians who obeyed God and applied the blood to the lentils of their doorposts of their home would be protected from the 10th plague. Other features to notice with regard to these three sets of the first nine plagues are that in the first two plagues of each cluster of three, so you have three clusters, okay? The first two, or I should do it this way for you guys, the first two of each three, Pharaoh is warned ahead of time that if he did not let the Israelites go, such and such a plague was coming. In the first two of each three, he's warned. In the third plague of each three, no warning, they just come. And that would be the lice, the uh, boils, and the darkness came without any warning. The first plague, water to blood, and the fourth plague, the swarms of flying creatures, were announced to Pharaoh as he was out at the Nile River in the morning. He would go out to the Nile. I guess that was a daily routine. I don't know if he bathed in the Nile or if he went out there to, to worship his gods. Perhaps it was some kind of ritual because they worshiped the Nile. So maybe that's what he was doing. So the first and the fourth, that's where he was when Moses came to him. He was probably in the palace on the other times when Moses came to him. After the third plague which was turning dust to lice. Egypt's magicians, remember those guys? (laughs) After that plague, they admitted to Pharaoh that it was indeed the finger of God. After the sixth plague, they could not stand before Moses because they were covered with nasty boils. After the ninth plague, which is the thick darkness, Evidently, they were swallowed up (laughs) with shame because uh, just like their rod serpents, they disappear from the scene. Just like that, you know, hocus pocus and the magicians are gone. 
Two of the plagues caused a stench, a reeking stench in Egypt. One was due to the horrible odor of dead fish floating on the waters of Egypt. The other was the stench that arose from piles and piles and piles of decaying frogs on the land of Egypt. So there's a stench arising from the waters of Egypt and a stench arising from the land of Egypt. And that is such a good spiritual picture of how those who oppress God's people, those who persecute God's people, and those who worship false gods instead of the true God are a disgusting odor to the nostrils of Almighty God. Now, the plagues do demonstrate God's sovereignty over every realm of life and death. They demonstrate his creative power. You have to be the creator to turn water to blood. You have to be the creator to turn dust to lice. They show his sovereign power over nature. The wind is what he raises up the east wind to bring in the plague of locusts. He removes the locusts by bringing in the west wind. He controls nature. You know, when a hurricane's coming our way, what do we all do? Pray, Lord, turn the wind. (laughs) Turn it out to the ocean where it doesn't hurt anybody. He also, of course, has power over Satan's realm. He defeats every single one of Egypt's false gods and her magicians. He shows his power over the magicians' enchantments and over the sorcerers and their connection with the occult. He shows his sovereign power over disease. He brings this grievous moraine disease on the livestock. He brings boils on people and on beasts. And he shows, of course, his power over death, the Passover deaths of all the firstborn. The plagues were demonstrated to be miraculous. Now, some people say that they're just, they were just the result of nature. But I just had the biggest chuckle when I was reading some of the excuses, Bible skeptics. You know, there's a lot of people who don't believe in the supernatural. So there was this report by two medical scientists from Yale, and they submitted their article. You know, they got all these PhDs behind their name. And they submitted this article to the Yale Journal of Science and Medicine. And it was regarding the ten plagues of Egypt. And guess, now, you know when they happened? 3,500 roughly years ago. We're talking about something that happened that long ago. They came to this wonderful conclusion. They attributed the plagues of Egypt to global warming. (laughs) Global? I couldn't believe it. So I put that in just so you all could get a chuckle too. So people deny it. But they, they definitely were miraculous. And here's how we know. They intensify. They're beyond any ordinary natural occurrence of such disasters. They are predicted because the specific times for each one of these plagues was predicted, you know, the arrival of them and then the departure of them. Like Moses asked Pharaoh in one of the plagues, when would you like me to get rid of these frogs? And he says, tomorrow. And the next day, boom, Moses gets rid of them. 
that's not, that's not global warming. <laughs> um, they're discriminatory. I mean, all the disasters affected the Egyptians. We know that. But at least seven of them, for sure, dogmatically, we can say, did not affect the Israelites. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? Because we know that that's not natural. When we get rain, does it affect the, the unsaved and the saved? And hail and all that? Yes. The sun shines on the just and on the unjust. But this was, especially when the darkness was in all of Egypt, except in the houses of the Israelites, there was light. That is not, that is supernatural. Then they're very orderly. There is an orderly increase in the severity of these judgments, just like the tribulation judgments. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, or the vials, they increase just like labor pains. And that's how these Egyptian plagues were. They increase in intensity from the death of fish in blood to the death of firstborns without the blood. Then there's a spiritual purpose for these plagues. They're not just random freaks of nature. They were carried out by God with moral and spiritual purposes. I list 11 that I could come up with in your notes, but I'm just going to suggest a few here. He brought them on in order to show a Pharaoh or to get Pharaoh, to force Pharaoh to let his people go. It was time. He promised Abraham the land. It was time for them to go. And so he's forcing Pharaoh to do that. He also uses them to reveal himself as sovereign God. He shows them uh, to Israel. He gives, you know, they're just as much a witness to Israel as to Egypt. He wants to let the Israelites know that they were indeed his special covenant people. Also to show, he wanted to show distinction between his people and those who do not know him and of course to cause his name and his power to be known throughout the earth the judgments were not just punitive they were evangelistic that's the way God works in his wrath he always remembers mercy he was trying to get people's attention so that they would be drawn to him that they would believe in him instead of all their false gods and that not only includes the Egyptians but it includes the Hebrews because so many of them after centuries in Egypt had likewise turned to the worship of false gods and of course he was using this as evangelism for others who would hear about it you know Rahab Rahab heard about what God did in the Exodus plagues and in the crossing of the Red Sea. And we have a testimony from Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who says, now I know that your Lord is the God. So apparently he didn't before that, but then he did because I heard about what he did in Egypt. So this was a testimony. It's still a testimony to us today, 3,500 years later, isn't it? Amen. So those are some of the purposes, but they were miraculous. They were not just the result of global warming or whatever. Now, another purpose of the plagues was divine judgment on Egypt's many gods. They don't even know how many gods and goddesses they worship, but they were a pantheon, a multitude of gods and goddesses. They worshiped the creation instead of the creator. They worshiped everything that moved (laughs) and didn't move. And now in Exodus 12, 12, I know that this was one of God's purposes because the Bible says so. He says he was bringing judgment on all the gods, small g, of Egypt. So this is dogmatic. This was one of his purposes. 
He wanted to show those who worship man-made gods and goddesses how foolish it is because they're totally impotent. Why are they powerless, all the gods and goddesses of mankind, all the idols? Why? Because they don't really exist, do they? They're just man-made, you know, stone, wood, just in their minds, in their imaginations. They draw pictures and say this is a god. So he wants to show how foolish that is. Some of, now there's many, but some of the gods and goddesses of Egypt who were proven impotent, powerless by Yahweh were, let's start with happy, or how, I don't really think there's any other way to pronounce H-A-P-I. I like to call him happy. He was a happy little guy because he was the god of the Nile River. You know, the Nile River is four th- over 4,000 miles long. That's a long, long river. It starts, actually, they're not really sure where it starts. Maybe Lake Victoria, but I studied that, and nobody ever came to a conclusion where it actually starts. But it's way down in southern Africa, and you know the Nile flows north, which is unusual. Um, And it flows north all the way through Africa, and um, then it goes all the way up to the delta and into the Mediterranean. That is a big river. Well, Happy was the god of the Nile River. And yet, he didn't have the power to prevent the Nile, at least in Egypt, from being turned to blood. Then there was Hecate, H-E-K-E-T. She was a she. She was the frog goddess of fertility because frogs are like rabbits and they multiply. Lots of little toads. And what are they called when they're real tadpoles? Well, she was the frog princess. I mean, the <laughs> frog goddess. <laughs> and it, you can Google. I had so much fun. It took me a long time to write this lesson because I had to look up what each one of these gods and goddesses look like. And sure enough, there she pops up on Google and she has the head of a frog. Beautiful. She's just gorgeous. <laughs> but she could not prevent the frog plague from happening, nor could she remove the frog plague, even though she was the frog princess, goddess. (laughs) But then there was Geb, G-E-B. He was a (laughs) green-colored, he was a green-colored god, green skin, and uh, he was the god of the dust of the earth. And he was proven impotent when Pharaoh's magicians were unable to duplicate God's miracle plague of turning the dust to lice. That was the end of Geb, because he couldn't do that. And if he was the god of the dust, you think he could do that? Well, Geb was married to Nut. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce N-U-T other than that, but that's her name. Maybe it's Newt. I don't know, but it's N-U-T. She was the goddess of the sky. And together, Geb and Nut produced the great egg. The great egg that came down from the sky and out hatched the sun god, Ra. Oh, my. Does that bring back any memories? Remember when we studied Babel and the one who was instrumental in the raising up the Tower of Babel was Nimrod? Nimrod had a wife named Semiramis. Semiramis... The queen, she called herself the queen of heaven. She claimed she was hatched from a giant egg that fell from heaven. All this goes back to what happened in Babel. 
Just some of the names are changed. You know, Semiramis, she became apparently Nut. <laughs> and, and then later her name was changed to Ishtar, from whence we get Easter. And what do people do at Easter? They decorate eggs. You see where it all originates? That's why I don't call Easter Easter. I call it Resurrection Day. All right, so that's the story of Nut and Geb. Then we go on to Kepri. Kepri was God, Egypt's god of creation and the movement of the sun. He was in charge of moving the sun, and he was in charge of life and rebirth. He had a big responsibility. Guess what his head was? A dung beetle. Yes, I said dung, D-U-N-G. You know what a dung beetle is? Oh, it's fascinating. If you Google dung beetles, they're also called scarab beetles, fascinating little creatures. They um, actually can fly like swarms. They have wings. Don't I do a good job of flying? <laughs> I look more like a chicken. But they can push a ball of dung, <laughs> which weighs like... Ten times or more their body weight, maybe even more than that. And you watch on the Google, you know, you see the little guy and he's working and he keeps moving that dung ball till he gets where he wants to go. And he goes over terrible terrain to get to a little hole and bury it because that's what they eat. Gross. But this god had the head of a dung beetle, a scare, because they actually worshipped dung beetles. <clears throat> they thought they were special. But didn't he fail? He failed, too, in his protection of Egypt against God's. He was in charge of all the insects, and he was, he was not able to prevent God's swarms plague. Hathor was the mother goddess, and she had the head of a cow. She proved impotent to protect Egypt's livestock from the murrain disease and also from the hail. ISIS. How many of you have heard of ISIS? <laughs> and I don't mean the Islamic state thing, but her, she was a goddess to begin with in Egypt. She was the goddess of medicine. She was supposedly the chief goddess magician. And she was frequently invoked by her worshipers on behalf of anyone who was sick. They would pray or call out to ISIS to heal their sick or to even raise their dead. But God proved her totally impotent to heal the people of their lice. She was impotent to heal them of their boils. She could do nothing about healing their cattle from the moraine disease, which is kind of like distemper or something that attacks livestock. She, and they died. She couldn't do, prevent that from happening. Nor could she raise back to life all Egypt's firstborns. Then there was Sekhmet. She was a warrior goddess, and she is depicted as a lioness, a female lion. She did battle with diseases and plagues, and they said it was her breath that took your head off. No, no, no. It was her breath <laughs> that caused the winds. Now, she was not only proved impotent and powerless by God's disease judgments, if she was, you know, doing the one to do battle with disease, she proved impotent. But she also proved impotent with regard to the locust plagues. Because who was the one who brought the east wind that brought in the locusts and took them out with the west wind? Was it Sekhmet or was it Yahweh? It was Yahweh, of course. Then there was Nut. We go back to Nut or Newt. Uh, he was the goddess, a god 
of the sky who proved impotent to protect Egypt with the plague of hail and lightning, which comes from the sky. He also proved impotent by the thick darkness that covered the land for three days. Set was the god of storms and disasters. He not only proved totally helpless and powerless against the plague of hail and lightning, but against the locusts who were brought in by the east wind. So there, you know, some of these gods, their responsibilities seem to overlap a little bit. But then there was Osiris. She was the goddess of crops. Well, she was helpless during the plague judgments that destroyed Egypt's crops and every herb and tree and all the fruit. Ra, the last one, Ra was the sun god, the one who hatched out of the big egg. He was the sun god and the giver of life. He ruled over, he was the Jupiter or the Zeus of Egypt's pantheon of gods and goddesses. He was the most widely worshipped god in ancient Egypt, but of course he too proved no match for the Lord. He was unable to hinder Yahweh from any of the plagues. If he was the chief god, couldn't he have overruled the Lord? No, but he couldn't prevent any of the plagues, including if he was the sun god, at least he could overrule the thick darkness, but he couldn't. So that's just some of the gods and goddesses Yahweh proved impotent. Actually, he proved all of them to be impotent because all of them are phony, fake, man-made, and probably even had demons behind them. Okay, so let's look now at the first plague. And for this, it's in Exodus 7, verses 14 to 25. I will point out a verse here and there, and you can look at it as we go along. Now, as we turn to this first plague, we do notice it begins with a prologue in which the Lord told Moses that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's in verse 14. The Lord said unto Moses, Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. I think Moses was already getting that inclination himself, but the Lord confirmed it. Now, this process of making his heart heavier continues through this whole series of plagues. He just is one very stubborn, willful man, Pharaoh. I would have hated to be his wife. But he was a stubborn man, and all he does, no matter what he sees, he just keeps hardening his heart more and more, and then the Lord assists him toward the end. This is interesting. In light, if you do a study on ancient Egypt, it's interesting when you find out that they believed when a person died, he faced judgment in the underworld, and... In that underworld, there was this, this is where this comes from. A lot of people today still believe this. My dad even kind of believed this, that there's in the judgment, there's going to be this giant scale, you know, a balance with, with two plates, one on each side. And so what they believed is that the heart of the deceased person, which is the very essence of a person, you know, that's what they, they believed the heart was. So the heart was put on one plate of the scale, and on the other plate of the scale was a feather, and it was the feather of truth and righteousness. Now, if the heart of the deceased person was hard, it was heavier. And the, the harder that it was, the heavier it was. 
And so if, if the heart was hard and it went like this, and here's the feather up here, that person was, was judged as unjust. And he was condemned and thrown to the devourers, whoever they were. And they swallowed him up and he went into annihilation. And that's interesting in light of all the swallowing up that we see in the, in the text. Now, on the other hand, if the person's heart was, was pure and light and it balanced out with the feather of truth and righteousness, he was judged good and he could therefore go into Egyptian afterlife. And I don't know what he did there. I don't know. Maybe he had seven virgins. I'm not sure. I didn't, I didn't look at that. <laughs> but we know there is no specific Egyptian afterlife, is there? There's either heaven or hell. Well, ironically, Moses was told with his first judgment to meet Pharaoh in the morning on the banks of the Nile River. That's in verse 15. I say ironically because do you remember what happened there 80 years earlier? That is where Moses was saved from death when he was only three months old. And it was by another Pharaoh's own daughter that he was rescued on the banks of the Nile. The king may have been there for a morning ritual connected with Egypt's religion, which did center on the Nile. The Nile was worshipped as divine. It was Egypt's source of life. Without the Nile, they could not have survived. So it was appropriate for the true source of life to begin his plague judgments with the Nile. Now, when Moses met Pharaoh by the river's bank, he commanded Israel's release. It's the first of many. Well, maybe the second. I think he's already said it. Let my people go. So he commands him again. And he tells him this time the consequences if he refuses. With Aaron's rod, God would strike the Nile and turn its waters to, to blood. Now, Pharaoh gives no indication whatsoever that he is going to submit to God. So Aaron lifts his rod and he smites the waters with that rod in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. So unbelievers are eyewitnesses to this miracle. And immediately the Nile and all of its tributaries and other water sources in Egypt, such as streams and rivers and even ponds and pools and water stored in buckets and vessels of stone and wood all become blood. The source, the strength, and the symbol of Egypt's life became a source and a symbol of death. Blood is a symbol of death. What happened? The fish died. The river stank from the dead fish floating on it. And the water was undrinkable unless you're into witchcraft and you drink blood. Now, the first plague was justly inflicted on the people. Actually, all of them were. This, this was just because these were people who served and worshipped the Nile and all the gods affiliated with the Nile. They, they worshipped them and the river itself more than the creator. 
Also, remember when the babies, the male babies at the time of Moses' birth, were thrown into the Nile to be drowned or devoured by crocodiles, the Egyptians themselves had stained that river with blood, had they not? So God is giving them here a visual picture of what they had done, what they themselves had done. Now, as listen to this and think through it. As Aaron's rod serpent swallowing Egypt's rod serpents was a picture prophecy of Egypt's army being swallowed up by God at the Red Sea, This first plague judgment here really is pointing, it's another picture prophecy of the next time a divine judgment would make a body of water bloody. You see, God's judgments on Egypt began with the Red Nile and they ended with the Red Sea. All of this is so neatly organized, isn't it? The land that worshipped gods, serpents as gods would be subdued by its head, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. That's the head of Egypt. Remember Genesis 3.15? The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So the land that worshipped serpents was subdued by its head in the Red Sea when they all drowned in the Red Sea. Also, we could say the land that worshipped water was going to be destroyed by water. Now, going back to the skeptics, the skeptics of the supernatural say, in addition to global warming, (laughs) that this miracle was not really a miracle. It was merely a matter of um, red-colored silt churning into the Nile during the flood season. But the Hebrew word for blood does not mean muddy, brownish water. It doesn't say that he smote it and it turned to bloody, I mean, brownish, muddy water. It says when he smote it, it turned to blood. And the word means blood. The text doesn't say red as blood. It says very specifically, and this was before unbelievers... So if it wasn't really blood and it was silt, they would have said, but they knew it was a miracle. It turned to blood. And it was not, now if this was silt filtering into the Nile River, it would have been a gradual process, right? This was a sudden thing. Ordinarily, the silt influx of the Nile was considered and still is a blessing, by the Egyptians. It helped everything with their irrigation process and all that. Um, and they actually celebrated the, the flooding and the influx of the, of the muddy silt into the Nile. But the water to blood miracle was anything but a blessing. It was a curse. Foul, loathsome, dead fish. You call that a blessing? undrinkable water, even in your little buckets? That, that was not a blessing. And how, how would silt get into, you know, if you had a, a bucket of water? It's just ridiculous what people come up with. Also, silting in the, in the water does not kill the fish. All right, so 
Um, in Exodus 7.22, we read this. And the magicians of Egypt did so, did so with their enchantments. Now, I wish that there had been a little bit more there to explain how the magicians did so, don't you? <laughs> but there isn't. Was their did-so power satanic? Perhaps. Was their did-so power deception? Likely. Where did the clean... And here's another question I came across, and I had to look into this. Where did the clean water come from that they then turned to blood? Huh? If all the blood in Egypt was turned to... I mean, all the water was turned to blood, where'd they get clean water? Well, good thing... The scripture gives us the answer for that one because it says in verse 24, they dug, the Egyptians dug around the uh, round about the river for water to drink. So what they did is they dug really deep into the sand of Egypt and got fresh spring water. So God didn't turn the water way down there into blood. Also have to think of this. If there was a time lapse between when Aaron struck the water and it became blood. And when the magicians got around to also duplicating that miracle, a time lapse, it wouldn't have taken a whole lot of time for new flowing water from outside of Egypt to come in and wash out the blood, you know, take it up into the Mediterranean. You get it? So fresh blood would come in. And they, fresh, yeah, fresh water, not fresh blood, fresh water would come in and flush out within a matter of days. And I believe that the magicians did their little miracle on a much, much smaller scale. Perhaps even only using one vessel of newly dug up water, maybe one bucket into which, by sleight of hand, which is called ledger domain <laughs> perhaps they put a few little drops of red dye into the water now you see pharaoh wouldn't care if he knew they were faking what they did because he really just wanted to stand firm in his resolve to not submit to god the god of the hebrews and his command to let his slave force go so even the smallest show by his magicians, um, that they had the ability to duplicate what Moses and Aaron could do, would give him the excuse to deny Israel her freedom. See, that would save face for him. So he would say, see, they can do that too. And it says that he just left, left and went back to the palace. So he was not impressed. He might have been impressed, but he didn't give into it. Now, Moses' first miracle, and I'm going to call it Moses's because it gets so complicated for me to say Moses, Aaron, because Aaron really, you know, the Lord used Aaron's rod, but Moses is the key figure here. His first public miracle was to turn water into undrinkable blood, blood that brought death, all the fish. Egypt's king, what had he done? Well, he had spurned and disobeyed the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, God's word, is symbolized in scripture as water. He also resisted the convicting, convincing work of the Holy Spirit, which is symbolized in the scripture as what? Water, living water. Both symbolize the word and the spirit. And so because he spurned and resisted, the result was death. 
represented by blood. Death, decay, and stench. Now, in contrast to that, the first public miracle of the prophet like unto Moses, the Messiah, one who was infinitely greater than Moses, as it says in Hebrews, the Lord Jesus Christ, what was his first public miracle? He turned water into wine, the finest wine the wedding guests of Cana had ever, ever tasted. So the first public miracles of Moses and Christ picture a very important biblical truth. Moses represents the law, okay? The word of God, the law, the commandments of God. So this truth is, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see, the law, to obey the word in its fullness, only brings death because of the fact that no one can fulfill the law. Not even in one day, can we? No one can keep it. And that was pictured when Moses came down with the law, the two stone tablets. And he saw what was going on with the golden calf, and what did he do? What they had done. They broke the law. I mean, before he even presented it to them, they had broken it, which is a picture of that all have sinned and broken the law of God. We all come short. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, is himself the giver of the law, the word of God, only he kept the law to perfection and thereby fulfilled the law, so he alone qualified to take upon himself our condemnation. There's no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. We, therefore, in Christ, who took our condemnation, we are free, hallelujah, from the curse of the law, which is death. Blood representing blood represents death. We are free from the wages of sin, which is death, eternal separation from God. So faith in Christ, faith in Christ, who is the living word, brings true inner joy represented by the wine. You see? Grace. We can live the abundant life. And even if circumstances living in this dark Egypt are not so great, we still have what? Joy. We have the joy. Don't let Satan rob your joy. It's all going to be okay in the end. We're going to live eternally in a wonderful place called heaven. And it's not make-believe. It's described in the scripture. I have not seen, ear hath not heard what God has in store for us. And it's going to be fantastic. So that's picture. Isn't that beautiful? Moses, blood, water to blood, Christ, water to wine. Okay, now we get into the frogs. This is in uh, Exodus 8, 1. Seven days. Now, this is the only time we know how much time lapsed between one plague and the next. There were seven days that passed after the first plague before Moses was instructed to again appear before Pharaoh with the command, let my people go so that they may serve me. That's in verse 8 and 1. Then Pharaoh is uh, warned that if he refuses to let God's people go, he the result is going to be frogs, frogs, frogs. Frogs so abundant they would be, he says, on thee, upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. That's somewhere in the early chapter of 1. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm getting to the bedchamber. But doesn't that sound like it was just on the Egyptians and not on the Hebrews? He says that the frog's on thee, your people, your servants. Doesn't say anything about the Hebrews. So I really think that they were protected from the frogs. Well, Pharaoh hears this about frogs, and he goes, again, and he doesn't budge. So Aaron stretches forth his rod to curse the streams and the rivers and the ponds, and immediately frogs are ubiquitous, which is a fancy word for meaning they are everywhere. They're even in your hair. (laughs) I just wanted to make a poem. Everywhere, even in your hair. Um, they came, it says they come, came up and covered the land of Egypt. And uh, they were, as Terry just said, they were even in the people's beds. Now, that would give me an AFib at night. You know, get into my bed and there's frogs hopping around. <laughs> and it says that they were in their ovens. You open up the oven to get out your pie and a frog hops you in the, you know, pops in your face. Ooh. And they're in their bread because they were in the women's kneading troughs where they uh, kneaded the bread. So it was, <laughs> it was frog chaos. <laughs> and the magicians, you know, these great guys with their, their, you know, can't you see them with their pointed hats and their little wands, their serpent wands and um, their big robes. And they come out and they only added to the pandemonium with their hocus pocus enchantments because what do they do? Here's the great heroes coming to. They only bring up more frogs <laughs> on Egypt. <laughs> now, again, we don't know how the magicians duplicated the frog miracle. But uh, the answer has to be that either they created illusions. I think they went around with their big robes and they had huge pockets in their robes. And they grabbed up frogs and put them in their pockets. And then <laughs> they went over to one of the ponds and said, abracadabra, and you know, had the frogs pop out. <laughs> That's called sleight of hand. Uh, they might have used deception or perhaps they relied on demonic power. You know, demons can take possession of creatures as they did in Jesus's day. He, they went into the swine and the swine had more intelligence than some people because they didn't want to be possessed. So they committed suicide and went off the cliff. But demons could have possessed frogs and then uh, obeyed the magicians when they said, enchantment to the frog goddess and out they popped you see what i mean so they could have used deception or they could have used satanic power i don't know but however they managed to produce the frogs there was an obvious problem with their power very obvious they were hopeless to reverse the miracle they were hopeless to get rid of the frogs when you call the terminex man you want him to get rid of the problem not add to the problem right but they added. <laughs> and so although their acts may have been super normal, they were not supernatural. But, you know, it's interesting. Pharaoh was not overtly bothered by the rod to serpent miracle. When all his magician's rods were swallowed up by Aaron's rod, it might have bothered him for a second or two, but not enough to make any difference because all the serpents disappeared, so that was the end of that. And he doesn't, didn't seem extremely bothered by the bloody water because I'm sure he sent his servants out. They dug a special well for him and his family. So that didn't, in seven days, it was all gone. But the frogs in his bed got to him. <laughs> frogs in his bed, jumping all over his food. That caused him to temporarily, and I say temporarily, cave in. So he calls for Moses and Aaron. And in effect, this is my interpretation. He says, entreat the Lord 
to get these frogs out of here. I've had it up to my neck in frogs. <laughs> and I will, if you do it, I will let your people go. Do you notice something? He says, entreat the Lord. What is this? 8-8? Eight, eight? Did I have that right? 8-8. Eight, eight. He's actually saying entreat. He wants Moses to intercede on his behalf to Yahweh. Now, remember back in Exodus 5-2, he sarcastically said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Well, guess what? He now knows who Yahweh, he knows him by name, and he knows him by experience, and he says, would you mediate on my behalf and get rid of these frogs? Well, Moses is growing. Oh, my goodness. Moses is really growing spiritually, and he is now totally confident in God, and he, so he responds to Pharaoh's request by saying, Glory me. That's a southern expression. See it in verse 9? <laughs> Glory over me. I think he said, Glory me. The frogs have done it. It's worked. So when would you like me, sir, to get these frogs out of here? And this, I think, is the greatest irony of the whole passage of the plagues because he doesn't say right now. He says tomorrow. He wants one more night with frogs in his bed. <laughs> Why did he say tomorrow? I don't know, but he says tomorrow. So the next day, now get ready for this, get ready. The next day, Moses besought the Lord to remove the frogs, and suddenly, all the frogs croaked at the same time. I came up with that on my own. And my little grandson, who maybe you'll get to meet him, Christian, came over and I was telling him the story about the plagues. And I said, Christian, listen to this joke grandma made up. All the frogs croaked at the same time. And he said, I thought they died. <laughs> he did not know what croak means, you know. <laughs> that's what the joke is, yeah. It's a play on words. So then I had to explain to him what croaking, you know, and I went into kicking the bucket and all kinds of things. <laughs> the multitudes of dead green amphibians were then, you know, dead frogs were everywhere. They had to get them out of their ovens and out of their beds and out of their bread. Uh, so they gathered up all the frogs and then they raked them together in these huge piles and uh, <clears throat> the smell of their decomposition literally made the land of Egypt stink, which is so, it's, you know, it's spiritually it got significance. Um, but with the smell of pungent frog odor <laughs> in his nostrils, Pharaoh hardened his heart a notch or two. He changed his mind. All the frogs are dead. Got rid of that problem. So he changed his mind, and he did not keep his promise to let Israel go. Next plague, third plague, lice. Ugh, have you ever had lice? Don't tell me if you have. <laughs> I never have. <clears throat> but my children had to be sent home from school several times because of lice in other kids' hair, you know. And then we went through the process of boiling the sheets back in the old day and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, lice. Without warning. Now, remember, this is the third in the third cluster. So without warning, the Lord had Aaron stretch forth his rod and smite the dust of the land, and the dust became lice. Just like the water became blood, the dust became lice in man and in beasts. Everyone had to be miserable because lice, I hear, is itchy. <clears throat> now, the magicians, they were looking through their little magic books, and they said, oh, we don't have a hocus pocus for this one. 
and we can't think of any way to use ledger domain. Uh, so they admit, they, they say to Pharaoh, that this is the finger of God. Just think if this is the finger of God, what he can do with his right arm, what he can do with an arm, what about both arms, what about his whole person? This is just the finger of God. Dust to lice, no problem. He made man from dust, didn't he? And yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not even hearken to his own spiritual wizards. That's all I'm going to say about lice, because I want to get away from them. <laughs> now, let's go on to swarms. Now, in the, uh, if you notice in your Bible, it probably says of flies, but the of flies is in italics, which means that of flies is not in the original. What is in the original Hebrew is only that swarms. It was a plague of swarms. Now, the word for swarms in Hebrew is Arab. A-R-O-B. No, it wasn't a swarm of Arabs. <laughs> well, that would be interesting. But it was, um, uh, Arab means, it refers to a swarm of one particular insect or a mixture of flying insects. The translators just decided to choose flies. Okay, that was their choice. They chose a swarm of flies. But, Egypt could have been infested with swarms of an insect that they greatly venerated, even worshipped. And what was it? The dung beetle. You thought we were rid of him? We're back to the dung beetle. The scarab. Swarms is Arab. You see? Connection there? The Egyptians thought that the god Kepri the one who had the head of a scarab beetle, they thought Kepri was responsible for keeping the earth revolving. Isn't that interesting? They knew the earth revolved. They were advanced. But they believed that God was responsible, the dung beetle God, for keeping the earth revolving just like a dung beetle keeps the ball of dung <laughs> revolving. <laughs> takes a lot, a lot of imagination to come up. You know, it would be so much simpler to believe in one God creator, wouldn't it? But uh, so the, we know that the Israelites were protected from the swarms of scarab beetles, if that's what they were, because it says so in 822. There were no swarms in the land of Goshen. You see what I think happened is after the water turned to blood and then the frogs were everywhere and then everybody had lice and all the kids had to come home from school and the moms had to boil all the sheets in the hot bathtub and all that. There was no more work project going on. There was no brick making and all the Hebrews went back to their homes in Goshen. Don't you think? There would be no building going on with all this. Now, with this plague, with the plague of swarms, Pharaoh makes his first attempt at a compromise. He says that he will allow Israel to go and offer her sacrifices in the land if the Lord would get rid of the swarms. That's in verse 25. I know. Well, I've got one page to go. All right, so he says, you know, if you get rid of it, I will let your people go in the land. What does that mean? In Egypt. This is a compromise. This is like Satan tries to tempt 
Anyone who's willing to leave once is thinking about leaving Egypt, this world, and going into the kingdom of God, into the promised land, he tempts them. Oh, you know, you can still stay in the world. You don't have to really leave the world. Just stay with us and just say you're a Christian and everything will be fine. Serve both, Egypt and, you know what I'm saying? But Moses flatly refused. No, he would not compromise. He reminded him if we did that, the Egyptians would stone us to death because it would be an abomination to them. We talked about that before. So Pharaoh attempts a second compromise. He says, okay, you can leave Egypt, but just don't go very far away. Again, that's like a temptation. All right, you know, if you want to be a Christian, just don't get too fanatical about it. Don't go overboard. Don't become one of these Jesus people, you know, just all. So that's, And again, um, well... Moses doesn't say he refused it, but he, he doesn't do that. He does go ahead because Pharaoh said, you can leave. So he goes ahead and he ends. He asks God and the swarm plague is ended. And what does Pharaoh do? He reneges on his promise and he hardens his heart even further. Then we get to the livestock disease in chapter 9. Another command is given to Pharaoh to let Israel go. Another advance warning of what would happen if he refused. The Lord would smite all Egypt's cattle and livestock with a very grievous disease that would kill them, and it did kill them. But we know again that Israel was protected because it says nothing would die that belonged to the children of Israel. Isn't that amazing? And Pharaoh didn't really believe it, so he sent some people to look in the land of Goshen. And sure enough, they came back with a report that not one of the Israelites' cattle had died. And yet still he refused to submit to God's command. And he succeeded further in hardening his heart. This guy's scale is getting worse and worse, isn't it? With the hardening of his heart. The boils, sixth plague, chapter 9, verses 8 to 12. The Lord brought the plague of boils in a unique way. He told Moses and Aaron to take ashes from a furnace. And Moses was to throw those ashes up into the air. And when they dispersed in the air, they uh, became, you know, they were like in the shape of fine dust that when it settled down on man and beasts, not cattle, because they were out of cattle, all the cattle died, so it's the other beasts. <laughs> and it produced boils, which broke out in blains. And blains are inflamed, itchy blisters on the skin. Now, we know that the Hebrews did not get the boils because it tells us, God's humor here, that the magicians could not appear before Moses. Moses represents his people, the Hebrews. Moses is standing. He doesn't have any boils, but the magicians cannot come before Moses. Why? Because they're covered from head to foot with boils. <laughs> Serves them right, right? So they're, they're all, and they don't have any tricks. They can't even begin. They don't want to reproduce this one. So um, it's, it's fascinating when I studied this, how the plague, these plagues rendered the, uh, I'm going to get in trouble again because I can't think of the word, rendered the priests inoperable. They could not function. They could not worship the gods with their religious hocus pocus and all that they did in their services to their gods and goddesses, the priests. Because they had super um, strict purification rites where they had to be clean, clean, clean before they went to worship their gods and perform their little rituals. For example, they shaved their heads every three days. That would help with the lice, wouldn't it? <laughs> but they also had to take daily baths. Well, when you have water that turned to blood, and then you have lice all over yourself, and then you have boils all over yourself, see, the priests were, they couldn't function. 
We got again getting, he's getting not only at the gods, but at their, their little priests. So um, I think, again, that's his humor. Well, hail was the seventh plague, and it was accompanied by great thunder and lightning storms that caused fire on the ground. It's the first plague that was performed by Moses' staff alone, 923. Again, we know God's people were protected because it says in 26 that there was no hail in the land of Goshen. The Egyptians were given a very merciful warning about this plague. You know, they, didn't, they couldn't turn on their TVs and watch the weather report and know that, a, well, they couldn't because God just sent it real quick, but that a hailstorm was coming and a thunderstorm, which we were supposed to get tonight. But they didn't know that, and so God warned them. He said, I'm going to send it, so if you want to survive, get inside and take your animals inside. And some Egyptians hearkened unto the voice of the Lord, wouldn't you, by this time? I would. <laughs> and so they took their, they went in and they took their animals in and they were protected. Other Egyptians were just like Pharaoh and they didn't listen. And so therefore they, they suffered great loss. Well, Pharaoh sent after this, he sent for Aaron and Moses and he confessed. Can you believe it? Pharaoh confessed his sin. <laughs> he said, and this is in 927, I think. For the very first time, he says, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh is righteous and I and my people are wicked. Wow. Now, it really would have been nice if that was a sincere, would God have forgiven him? Yes. But, you know, it wasn't. It was a manipulative confession uh, to get Moses to stop the storm. And Moses responded by telling him, yes, I'll stop the storm. I'll spread my hands before the Lord. The storm will end. And he says, so that you, Pharaoh, will know how that the earth is the Lord's. And then he goes on. Moses is braver and braver. And he tells the Pharaoh that he knew his confession was phony. Phony baloney, I know. And he also knew his promise was empty because he says in verse 30 of chapter 9, I know that ye will not yet fear the Lord God. He's getting to understand this guy pretty well, isn't he? <laughs> and uh, so he ended the plague anyway, and Pharaoh proved his prediction true because he, he again reneged on his promise, and he made his heart harder, and he also gave evidence that his confession of sin was not sincere. The locusts, the eighth plague. After the hail plague, Pharaoh's servants, his own officials, his officers, his whatever you call them, they requested, they've had it, okay, they've really had it. And so they say to Pharaoh, please, you know, stop this. Uh, and uh, they were ready for the judgments to end. So they say, they're talking about Moses, and they say to Pharaoh, how long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? This is wise counsel from these men. Haven't you got it yet, king, in your thick head that we're, we're being destroyed by this God of the Hebrews? So why don't you just let the Hebrew men go and worship the Lord? And so that's what he did. He said, tells Moses, okay, I'll give in. You men can go out and sacrifice to the Lord, but the women and children have to stay behind. Uh, he knew that they would not escape without their families. So, again, this was a temptation like it is with us. Okay, if you want to become a fanatic, that's one thing. But don't drag your kids into this. My dad said that to me. Don't brainwash your children 
with this Christianity stuff. And I, I said, why wouldn't I, Dad? The world is trying to brainwash them. I'm going to do my very best to brainwash them. Wash their brains with the cleansing of the blood of the lamb. <laughs> I posted on Facebook. Uh, I saw it came through. And it was, um, a, as a parent, my job is to get my kids into heaven, not to Harvard. Right? I like that. I like that. Today, I wouldn't send them to Harvard even if they could get in. Well, after the hail plague, okay, so we had the, the locust plague. And um, so the Lord told Moses, stretch his hand with his rod over the land. Locusts came upon the land. They ate everything. Uh, the Lord brought an east wind that brought him in. And then when, uh, when um, <laughs> this is funny because after, after he begged them um, to let the men go only, Moses refused. He says, no, we're going to go with our children, our whole families, or not at all. Pharaoh was so upset, he drove them out of the palace. Moses and Aaron, get out of here. I mean, he had them taken out. But two days later, after the locust place, p- p- plague, he begs them to come back in haste, it says. <laughs> get back here. And so for the second time, he makes a confession. Pharaoh does. He says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Isn't that nice? I've, I've confessed. I've sinned against you two nice brothers. So he says, please forgive me. And he begs. He says, please entreat the Lord your God this one time only. Please, please, pretty please. And get rid of the locusts. And so the Lord sends a west wind. And you know where the locusts wind up? Drowned in the Red Sea. Now, isn't that perfect? Another picture of what would happen. And it wasn't the breath of the goddess Sekhmet that controlled the winds. It was Yahweh. The ninth plague was the thick darkness. And it was performed by Moses stretching forth his hand. It doesn't say anything about his rod, but just his hands toward heaven. Probably did have his rod. But the darkness lasted how many days? Three. Why do you think three? Why not two? Why not four? Why not six? Why not seven? Why three days? Uh Uh-huh, the Lord, now people wouldn't know this for many, many, many years, but there was a reason for that. And the the darkness was so thick, the people couldn't see one another. That's thick. Have you ever been in a darkness that thick? You can't even see a hand in front of your face? Yeah, when I was in the bottom of the pyramids, we went down and the the guide turned the lights off. That was thick darkness. (laughs) Um, and so they, everything stopped. It came to a standstill because people couldn't even walk around. They couldn't see where they were going. Um, blocking the sunlight was a direct attack against Egypt's most esteemed god, the sun god, Ra. Israel's unique protection from this darkness is mentioned. It says in verse 23 of chapter 10, you see I'm almost at the end. I'm in cha- chapter 10, verse 23. It says, all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now that is a miracle. You know, that is a miracle. Think about it. There's darkness all over Egypt. Even apparently in Goshen. And yet every little dwelling where the children of God live, there's light. Is that not spiritually significant? It is because they had the light of truth in a world of complete spiritual darkness. Isn't that what our homes are supposed to be? Beacons of light? We are beacons of light wherever we go. My mom one time when she came to visit, 
She said, when she came into my home, she said, there is light in this house. And it was in the day. She said, I feel light in this house. And it was the greatest compliment she ever gave me. Is that a reflection of your house? When people walk in your house, do they feel the light? Do they know you're a Christian when they look around your house? Well, Egypt's darkness for three days took on additional significance when, and what was this plague? It preceded immediately the next one, which was the death of the firstborns on what night? The very first Passover. So this is all a picture. It's, um, it's a prophecy to the time when Christ on the Passover experienced three hours of thick darkness. He endured in those three hours on the cross from 12 to 3. He endured the full cup of God's wrath against sin. And for the first and only time ever, eternity past or future, he experienced broken fellowship with his heavenly father. A dark veil was put over the land so nobody could witness the crushing agony of the Savior enduring those three hours where he spent an eternity in hell for you and for me. After his death, there were again three days of darkness on the whole world, Egypt, the world. Three days of spiritual darkness because it looked like all hope in Christ was gone. Even those who had believed in him, it looked like all hope was gone. It looked like Egypt had been successful in putting out the light of the world. That's why those two on the road to Emmaus are so depressed, you know. But death cannot hold the prince of life. If his disciples had understood who Christ was, really understood how he is present throughout the whole Old Testament, if they had really understood and if they had really listened to what he said, but on the third day I will rise. If they had really heard with perceptive ears, they would have all been hovering around the tomb Sunday morning. There would have been a welcome party <coughs> there for him, right? <coughs> and I say, of course, of course, he came bursting forth out of that tomb on the third day and the spiritual darkness dissipated forever and ever from those who know him, who put their faith in him and drink of his water turned to wine, right? Of course he came. You know, resurrection is the greatest thing that ever happened. And one day too, all the graves of those who believe will be burst forth and the bodies will come out and join the spirits in it. Hallelujah. The light of Christ now shines, you see, supernaturally in the hearts and the homes of those who know him. While the rest of the world, Egypt is in spiritual darkness. So thick when you leave here. Don't you feel the thickness when you turn on the news? Don't you feel the thickness of the darkness of this world? Well, with the darkness plague, Pharaoh tried another compromise with Moses. He requested that he end the plague and the darkness, <clears throat> and I will let the Israelites go even with their little ones, I'll let you even take your families, but you have to leave your flocks and your herds here with us. He was running out of cattle, wasn't he? 
he needed. But he also knew that they um, would not leave for good without their, their cattle. Moses again refused the offer, and he said this. I love this. This is where the Marines get it. He said in verse 26 of chapter 10, Not one hoof left behind. <laughs> That's really his word. You know, when you, when you serve the Lord and you leave Egypt, you're, you're giving the Lord everything. Your possessions. I'm not going to leave anything in Egypt for the world to use, right? I'm going to take not only my, children, my family with me, Lord willing, of course they have free will, but don't try to take my family with me. I'm going to give him everything I have, every last hoof, my time, my energy, my money. Everything that I have is yours. Not one hoof am I going to leave back behind in Egypt. You get it? Yay, Moses. He did not compromise. And so then he goes on. Well, Pharaoh is very mad. So Pharaoh says to him, well, first of all, Moses says, not only no hoof left behind, but when you do give, let us go, you're going to be giving us what you have. Now, that didn't set too well with Pharaoh. So he had it. And he said, get out of here. If I see you again, you will die. And we know what happened, right? Not only did he lose his son, but he lost his own life. Yes, I do believe Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea with his army. But that's all for next time. We come back April 30th. Lord, thank you for the patience of your people. I just love their hunger for your word. Thank you for all the truths you have to teach us. Again, as I say, they're always just so endless, so mind-boggling and so perfect and so wonderful. And as we go into resurrection season, I pray we will be the light to this dark world and we'll be a witness to everyone we come across and tell them the true, true meaning of the resurrection. It is not about Easter bunnies and eggs. It is about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Life, the author of life, the author and finisher of our faith, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great sovereign God who has given us life and made it possible for all to have eternal life with him forever and ever. I pray everyone here truly has experienced the second birth and won't die the death of the first birth. Or we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.